the Marathon Medic podcast. I'm your host, Amy Bolsch, a doctor and running coach with an interest in sports and exercise medicine. These podcast episodes are all about physical activity, exercise and health, and today I'm joined by Dr. William Bird. Dr. Bird is a GP passionate about promoting physical activity and the natural environment for the benefit of health. He is CEO of the company Intelligent Health, which creates active communities through schemes like Beat the Street, and he has also set up health walks, green gyms, and even a health forecasting unit at the Met Office. He was awarded an MBE for his contributions to health and physical activity in 2010, and today Dr. Bird joins me to discuss where this passion for physical activity came from, his involvement in the national schemes I've mentioned, the benefits of nature to our health, and the barriers and challenges faced when trying to increase activity levels amongst the population. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me today on on this very windy day. Amy, absolute pleasure. Yeah, it is windy, and I'm just expecting the power to go any moment (laughs) as our trees are kind of creaking and bending over over power lines. So um, we'll see how we get on. But um, yeah, real pleasure to be talking with you and uh, for everyone to listen. Yeah, thank thank you so much. I really appreciate your your time. Would you mind just starting us off by just introducing yourself to all of our listeners, please? Yeah, so my name is um, William Bird. I'm a GP. I've been a GP for a very long time, so for about almost 30 years, and had an interest right from the start of physical activity. And it was started really because I was a diabetic doctor as opposed in in the practice because all the junior doctors when they first start in the practice were always given the diabetes so that was that was your kind of right to passages starting in a practice where I was so I was trying to get my diabetic patients more active and that made me realize how difficult it was and that got me on the whole essence of kind of getting people active which has lasted my entire career so i have still a gp mostly do out of hours now set up health walks and green gyms right in the beginning and have worked for natural england and the met office funnily enough um but also it's been now my kind of main aim the last 10 years as ceo of intelligent health that gets whole populations more active particularly in the deprived areas through a game called beat the street using technology gamification and behavior change and was activity something that was part of your life growing up? Were you encouraged to be active in, in your family? Or was it very much something that you associated with your with your job role and working with the diabetic patients that you mentioned? Yeah, I think it was really the diabetic. I was never sporty. I was outdoors. I love being outdoors. I love walking. I love going out in nature. So my mum was a naturalist. My dad was a doctor. So I kind of brought the two together. Um, so I, I was not, and I rode, <laughs> no, but I wasn't, I wasn't a runner. Um, I didn't played football very well I was hopeless at all the other team sports um played a bit of tennis that was all right but I wouldn't say I was a sporty person or an active person generally um and it was only when I was really kind of trying to work out how to get the diabetic patients more active when they kind of listened to everything else but they just did not get this bit and it kind of really bugged me at the time which is why I think I really went into the research to try and understand you know why don't people become active when they know how good it is for themselves? Um, and that's really how it started. And I could, my love for outdoors meant that the health walks and green gym kind of linked together people and nature to try and keep people active, which is obviously then set my whole agenda for the future. Were there any clinicians doing similar work to you at, at this stage? Was there anyone particularly inspiring uh, for you on that journey? Or was this very much something that you kind of had to, had to fight for yourself and, and do all the research and, and start that movement? So I'd say that there were researchers out there, and I think it was um, Melvin Hillsden who did a paper 
right in the start of 19, well, it would have been the 1990s. I think it was published in about 1994 or 93, which showed that walking was a really good exercise to do. And you know, that might seem a bit strange now because research has moved on. But at that time, the guidelines were 20 minutes of vigorous activity three times a week. And that was how activity was veered. You had to do sport, you had to do running, you had to do gym work, you had to do something really vigorous, otherwise it didn't count. And suddenly this paper got published with no fanfare at all, didn't get mentioned by anyone, massive systematic review, and it showed actually walking is really good. And I looked at that and I thought, why are we doing this? You know, this is clearly the answer. This is why, you know, we've been failing so long because people don't want to do all the um, gym and running and all those vigorous activities. They wanted to do something normal and that's how we'd been designed. And I think it was that point from Melvin's point of you know, view who did that. Charlie Foster was also another big, um, you know, he was rising star at the time and really helped me. Um, and I think there were a few others, um, Stephen Blair in the United States, who was doing a lot of work on fitness as well. So I think it was these researchers. But I have to say that going to the chief medical officer and the NHS, they looked at me and thinking, well, walking isn't proper exercise. You know, that that doesn't count. So your health walk's great, lovely, you know, good on you, but we're not interested. Um so it needed a lot of push and pers persuasion and perseverance. And I have to say that British Heart Foundation were excellent at the time and they helped those initial, you always need someone on your side right at the beginning just to get you going when you're trying to do something new. And the British Heart Foundation and countryside agencies, it was then, now Natural England, were probably the two organisations that got it and helped me on my way. It's uh, it's really interesting to hear that because I think now so much of the information we provide patients is really geared towards every movement matters and you know it doesn't have to be a prescribed exercise just getting getting out reducing your sedentary behaviour is, is very much the message we're pushing so it's interesting to see how how that's changed over the years. Yeah, it is, and I think also at the time exercise referral was very very popular. And of course, NICE you know, did a, a systematic review and said, look, it doesn't work. You know, it really doesn't work. So we shouldn't be putting lots of money in. And it probably makes sense why it doesn't work, because you were kind of making physical activity a kind of an addition to your life. You're bolting it on to a point where it's actually not your normal life. You know, going to a gym for most people is a really scary place. You're suddenly talking and looking around at people who are very fit, very active. And, you know, when the first people came in with diabetes and who are obese and overweight or got arthritis, you know, there was no way that they could feel comfortable. And likewise, sport, etc. And I think what we've realized now is that physical activity has to be a means to an end, not the end in itself. Now, some of, you know, yourself and, and myself, we love exercise for its own sake. But the great majority of people will only do exercise as a means to do something else, be with the grandchildren, go to the shops in your active travel, um, learn a new skill, meeting up with people. Um, so all of those are physical activity as a means to that end. And the end itself is a different thing. It might be walking to the football stadium. Um, but actually, our bodies have always been designed to conserve energy. You know, one of the biggest things on any animal species is to conserve calories because you don't want to expend excess calories. So all our design has been to use physical activity to gather food or to fight. And therefore, we're now doing physical activity in its own right. So if you're stressed, 
you revert back to being very much more on the basic instincts of things, you will actually then find it really hard to, to kind of have physical activity over and above your normal life because your your survival mode will actually keep you down to being sedentary. And I think we have to remember this. If we're, you know, if we've got affluent, we're, we're educated, we live in a, a place which is really safe and comfortable, then we find physical activity quite easy and don't quite understand why people don't do it. If you're living in a very deprived neighborhood which is fearful lots of crime around you're just basically surviving you're just managing to keep your children and your family together you've got all sorts of problems then physical activity will be so far down because your brain is telling you that it's going to be far down and i think this whole aspect of physical activity becoming a means to an end is the way we're going to get the inequalities sorted out on on activity that's a really interesting perspective to consider actually and i don't think you know, all the conversations that I have about physical activity, I'm not sure that narrative is discussed enough and maybe we don't give enough attention to the reasons why somebody might not be putting physical activity higher up on their priority list. Um, in terms of us promoting physical activity, I was just hoping to get your perspective on how important physical activity is in addressing the health inequalities that you've touched on, but also in addressing the ageing population that we have and the pressures that the NHS is under and will continue to be under for the foreseeable future as well. I think you know, there's no doubt that physical activity is absolutely vital for an ageing population, and it's never too late to start. So we shouldn't be just sort of focusing on people in, in a particular age. It's all the way through, whenever someone can do it. And we go through times in our lives where actually it's not appropriate, it does, it's very difficult. Um, and I think we have to accept that, you know, when we're doing, when we're talking to patients and they're going through a very difficult time, it may not be the best time to come to start being active because they'll fail and then they'll feel bad. So it's always got to be a, a message every single time, you know, they make every contact counts. It's got to be that message all the time that, you know, is this the opportunity just to do a bit of activity? So that's got to be throughout the NHS, through every single pathway that we do, every clinical consultation has got to have that physical activity bit just as a little prompt every time. So that's the first thing we should be doing. If we're going to keep an elderly population from causing huge problems for the NHS, then physical activity is the single most important thing to do. Now, dietary, you can say about obesity, and of course, obesity in itself is the main is a is a huge problem but obesity in itself is a lot about the inflammatory response from visceral fat that's causing it and physical activity is the one way of getting rid of that visceral fat so i don't think we should have this debate about oh is it obesity or is it physical activity you know it's both but physical activity is easier to increase in your life than it is to lose weight so let's start with the things that are easier to do and and yes if you're very active and you're overweight we know from a fitness point of view that will override a lot of the problems that you have with your with your weight so we've got to kind of get this message about physical activity not just for about losing weight but in its own right and there's still a sticking point in the nhs that physical activity is there to lose weight it doesn't lose weight actually it's really hard to lose weight by just being on being active on its own you have to do a lot you have to do 250 minutes at least it's very good at keeping weight off it's not so good at actually losing weight in the first place. And that's not what it's designed. It's designed for all the other things it does, and particularly this inflam inflammatory stuff. So that's the first thing. And as you go down into people who've got long-term conditions and those in the more deprived communities, then physical activity becomes even more important because this chronic inflammation is much more of a problem. And the main 
way that physical activity reduces all the things it does, all 23 long-term conditions, is this fact that it's an anti-inflammatory, a really powerful anti-inflammatory. It releases the myokines from muscles. It causes the visceral fat to fade. It takes away some of the inflammation from many other ways. And what we have to do now, I think, is to kind of feel that we're treating chronic inflammation as a disease, which I've got as a GP, no other lever to pull to make that happen. I can give statins, that's an anti-inflammatory. I can give low-dose aspirin, that's an anti-inflammatory. But they don't really work on this chronic inflammation, which is a bedrock for diabetes, for heart disease, for all these other things. But physical activity is a treatment. So is dietary measures. So is good sleep. So is not smoking. So is those other things. They're not preventative. They're treatments. And I think we should be starting to think about those as treatments in the NHS. But again, put it into a pathway or to an activity that the person is having a better life. They're not having to do all these things as extra. They've got to eat this diet. They've got to do this exercise. They've got to go to bed early, you know, because they're not going to do that. But you just say, look, you know, you're having a really difficult time. You're not paying the bills. You're living in the fourth floor of a high rise flat. You've got three children. You're living on your own. You're trying to do a job. We can't suddenly add physical activity onto that person's load because it just won't happen. But what you can say is to actually have a better life, to enjoy things, you might want to join a whole lot of other mums or dads doing things with the children in the park on Tuesday. Or you might just want to go for a walk. Or you might want to do something which actually is going to make your life better. And physical activity is the means to get there. So we have to really be careful how we change and listen to the patient to be able to make that happen. And when we're going to people who are really struggling, that needs bigger skills and a better way of understanding that behavior change than dealing with someone who is like ourselves, who sometimes, you know, we can't understand why people aren't doing an activity. So that's a long answer, sorry, but that's kind of putting through how the NHS, I think, is so important to view it slightly differently um, as a treatment of chronic inflammation, which obviously prevents all those other conditions, but also how we should be addressing and dealing with it, you know, deprived communities where it really is a big load to add to, onto someone's existing load, which is obviously a lot. It's actually perfect timing because I did my um, making every contact count training yesterday, which is very much focused on talking to people and getting their answers for their problems. So not assuming that we know best, not telling them to, you know, this is the activity you should go and do. It's kind of understanding more about what their barriers are and what their lifestyles like and what changes they can make and trying to get the answers from them. And like you said, things that will fit in and make their life better, not not add it, add it on as an extra stress by telling them they have to, you know, go, go on a 30 minute walk every day, which just isn't going to be possible for a lot of people. Yeah, and I think that, that training, I mean, people do say, oh gosh, I mean, every, make every contact counts, it's a bit old hat now, it's been going on for ages. But actually, the principles are absolutely right. And, uh, you know, whichever way we call it and how we address it up, it is absolutely the fundamentals of being a doctor or any any healthcare professional dealing with um, patients is that you have to start and living from where they are now and build up from there rather than, as you say, oppose your own views about it, which would be totally different to to patients you know we get when we're doing our work intelligent health we're getting people who have just never been out of their housing estate for about 15 years you know and that housing estate's really small it's got a shop it's got the doctor's surgery it might have a you know a village you know, village or community center and that's it they don't go anywhere out of that now that's a world that we probably don't understand but we have to start from that premise 
before we can even get anywhere near changing our behavior. So you've, you've touched on intelligent health, and I just want to explore that a little bit more. So you're the CEO of Intelligent Health, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is an organization that's building in creative, active communities. And there's lots of different schemes that you've been working on. I think the most widely known is, is Beat the Street. I was just wondering if you could just share a little bit more about what intelligent health is and some of those projects that, that you've implemented. Um, yes, I, I can. And I kind of, when I was doing work, I've been doing quite a lot of work at the time with um, Natural England, where it was trying to bring nature and health together, which is a big area for me and um, really get passionate about that. Um, and worked with Sport England and worked with the Department of Health about getting physical activity in there. But I just felt we were getting so slow and uh, it was difficult. So I set up a company to try and do things differently. And I had no idea how to run a company. I was actually 48, which is really late to start something like that when you've got absolutely no experience. So I made pretty much every mistake in the world, I think, to start with. Um, and I have no idea how we can manage to get through with a friend over the first five years, um, you know, with pennies sometimes we had. Um, and then built up. But basically what we were trying to do is to work out how do you actually shift a whole population to become more active? Really ambitious. But in the, in the end, you know, after years and done it over 10 years now, just about, it's gamification has worked really well. You get people to taste what the world can look like, your world or their world can look like for six weeks. And then all the opportunities they have in that six weeks, they then continue afterwards. So Beat the Street is initially, it looks like a child or, or kind of children's program because it, we actually give out fobs or cards to every single school in the area we normally get 100 percent of schools it's about 60 to 70 percent of children will take those cards home with them with a map and they will give an extra card to their parents and then they can get more cards or these are rfid cards from the library or from shops around and then we put up beat boxes which are rfid readers on lampposts all around the town or city so anything from 30 or 40 to five to 500, I think we had in um, Sheffield. And then all they have to do is touch their card on the beatbox and they get points for their school and that's it. So they start doing it and we get thousands and thousands of people. So for Sheffield, we got 60,000 people, which is about 14% of the entire population of Sheffield started playing. And the majority of them are families, but you get community groups as well. And then people start to meet at the beatboxes and talk and they start to get together. The council, we have a steering group which brings lots of partners together. So we've got Canal and River Trust, we have Wildlife Trust, we have all the sporting organisations, we have the transport, we have health, we have everyone else all saying, right, we've got six weeks and we can direct people to different places by putting different points on those beatboxes to drive them to parks, to drive them to shops, to drive them to um a kind of sporting places so they can get more and more points for their team which are the schools or the communities and because of the physicality of it they're holding something in their hand and they're seeing something on the lamppost we reduce pretty much every barrier you can get so in less than 70 percent we're in the bottom 40 percent of deprivation so we very much overrepresent very often the more deprived communities now we can do it on an app but as soon as you do it on an app, you will lose a lot, we think. And we've got the app already, but we you will lose a lot of the people who we manage to engage, particularly in the more deprived areas. It's not because they don't have a phone. It's just because there isn't that reward part of touching something physically. And that is a real psychological, and that's the thing we've really learned. So 
what we do, 70% of people who are inactive become active and they remain active even for six months. And we've done it over two year evaluation and we published quite a few papers on this, but we can continue that physical activity simply because people have had that experience. They now know their world around where they live. They've gone and ventured out because there's been a reason to do it. They've met up with other people. They've perhaps have joined a group. They've got a mum's group or dad's group working together. And suddenly their world is open. So we've given them that opportunity. We then take everything down after six weeks because what we want to do is have an intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic. So the game got it going. Now they can actually do it intrinsically. And we've got all the data to show what they wanted, what they like, because we they all fill in a questionnaire about their health, about their activity, about their mental health, about their nature connectedness. So we've got a huge amount of data on that. So that's really where Beat Your Streams, and 1.5 million people, I think, have come to come through it so far. Um, and we're learning all the time, which is really exciting. Wow, that's a, that's a huge number. Is that just in, in the UK or is that spreading elsewhere? So we have done it in other places. We've done it in Norway, in Italy, um, in Germany, Austria. But we focused on really the UK. We're now a system partner for Sport England. So it means now we're working with Sport England to try and help other councils and towns to become more active. So we're working with Sport England and we're working with other organisations as well. But we're focusing on the UK, but we will be moving to other places as well. In Europe, it works really well in Europe. In fact, that'd be great. So that'd be our next stage. But Scotland done more on transport. England, it's done more on physical activity. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just looking at the next lot for the Commonwealth Games, hopefully doing a lot in the West Midlands coming up in June. Perfect. That, that's really exciting. I'll look forward to hearing about how that goes. I was just wondering, you said there that you, you get feedback afterwards. I was just wondering what you'd learned from that feedback and particularly people that are taking part in Beat the Street, for example, are they associating it with physical activity and exercise or is it actually the associations about community and meeting new people and getting outdoors rather than that emphasis on, oh, I, I've become more active through this process? The number one reason that people continue to do it is because it's fun. <laughs> fun comes out really, really strongly. And then if you look at the incentives, um, and in fact, we've just published a paper um, which looks at the motivations, and it kind of divides it into four areas. I'm going to see if I can remember the four areas, but one is family, one is school, um, one is incentives, and one is health. And for children, school is the biggest thing and incentives. That, that's the thing that really drives them. For parents and for others, it's family is the bigger driver. Incentives are really quite low. Health a little bit. So health and incentives are the lower ones. Um, the school stroke community and family are the bigger ones. So what people are saying, it's fun and I'm doing it with other people. I'm doing it with friends. I'm doing it with family. I'm doing it with the school. The actual health side is really low and incentives is very low. So incentives get some going because they want to start and understand what it's all about. But that fades very quickly. And that's great. That's exactly what we want. We don't want those incentives to be the mainstay of it. Otherwise, you, you'll create a beast that you have to keep feeding um, with more and more incentives. And that becomes expensive and difficult. But you do want the incentives to get it, to get it going, kickstart it, but people realise they can actually go together and they can actually meet up with other people. And then one of the things that has come forward probably more recently is the place as well. So visiting places they've not been to before, realising that their town is really quite beautiful and they haven't been to some places which they 
have lived in the town for 30 years and they never knew that existed or they never knew that was there. So in a way, we're connecting people to each other and we're connecting people to place and it's fun. And that can never be underestimated, but it's got to be it's got to be fun. Otherwise, it's not worth doing. Some of the motivations you mentioned that make me think of Parkrun, actually, because I, I think it obviously involves a lot more activity. It is that weekly 5K. But I think a lot of the, the reason people go to Parkrun is for the community aspect and knowing that it's in their local area with the same people each week and it's going for the coffee afterwards. It's not the fact that they're going to run um, or they're going to get a personal best time. It's all the other elements that motivate people to turn up week after week. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Park Run is a great example where it's volunteer led. So you've got people going there. You've got it's the same time every week. So there's a kind of routine there. Um, You meet then the same people and you create that new community for yourselves. And yeah, that's the thing that becomes really, really powerful. And I think people then don't want to let other people down. So you then want to keep going. Um, and we feed a lot of people into park runs. In fact, we create new park runs from beat the street, particularly junior park runs, because we're dealing so many with the younger population. So, yeah, it's a great way of feeding people. And it is all about the community. Same with the health walks. The health walks, when they started, the biggest reason why people carried on was because they met people and they could talk and they could go for a walk talk it was a brisk walk they had a leader there so we didn't need to worry about where they were going or safety and uh, they just continued to do that and then of course they became health walk leaders themselves volunteers just like in parkrun you become a volunteer and that creates a whole new community for you particularly those people who are on their own or perceived as feeling lonely this is a you know this is where physical activity now is a means to an end and the end is that entry to that new group of people that, that new friends so so important yeah i could uh, i could keep talking about this subject for a while because it's also making me think of good gym now i'm not sure if you've, you've heard of good gym yes indeed again another yeah. one <laughs> all, all these ones have been brilliant um and good gym again yeah it's 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 that community aspect and, and if you have a town or a neighborhood that's inactive it's a dying community because you haven't got that interaction of people. You can't do it virtually all the time. Of course, you can do a bit. But if people are all locked into their own places and not meeting, and there's the kind of proverbial tumbleweed going down the street, then it's going to be a fearful place to go. Nobody will want to meet. The shopping centers become derelict. You get graffiti. You then get the kind of antisocial behavior finding its way into those areas, and you'll see a place die. As soon as you get people out, they become surveillance for what's going on. The antisocial behavior gets pushed away. You start to get that vibrancy. You meet up with people. And therefore, these small journeys that people make to the post office as they used to or to the shops were so important for a place. And that, of course, has now faded because people don't need to go and do those short journeys. And this is what we're really trying to reproduce again, is to get people out to do those short journeys so they can interact. And physical activity is a glue that holds it all together. And I think another theme throughout all the, the schemes that we've mentioned is the fact that they're all outdoors and they're in, in the main part within nature and, and outside in, in green spaces. So I was just wondering if we could explore that a little bit more, because I know you've got a specific interest in kind of the benefits of being outside and in nature, and you've held roles with Natural England as well. So what is it in terms of the benefits of getting people outside in nature as opposed to just getting people active in a gym, for example? I know you've touched on the the community aspect, but what else does the outside fresh air greenery offer? 
I mean, first of all, when I always say this, I always have to put a caveat that I don't want to stop people doing gym work and don't want to stop people doing indoor stuff because some people absolutely love it. Um, and I've got family members who would, you know, were in kind of almost shock during when all the gyms closed because they love that so much. And we're all different, but there are some added benefits about being outside in nature, which are physiological. And it all goes back to us being a hunter-gatherer and being hardwired, our brain is half hardwired when we're born and the other part is plastic and it just sort of gradually evolves. But that hardwiring shows that greenery, water and openness outside makes us feel safe and secure. And it's purely because that's what we needed as a hunter-gatherer. We needed to be in a place where there was food, where there was water, where there was shelter. So we retain that. And therefore, when we see green space, we get more alpha waves, we get all sorts of changes in the brain. And when you exercise outdoors, there are two things that probably change differently from indoors. First of all, your perceived rate of exertion is less. So it's probably the distraction of things around you or the reduction, slight reduction in stress of seeing greenery. Now, that, I'm not talking about a horrible street where you've got cars whizzing past you at 90 miles an hour. I'm talking about going on a, a good solid path where you're going in a park and you've got green space around you so your perceived rate of exertion so it means that you can do more exercise than you feel you're doing outside than inside and that's been shown quite a few times the other thing is that we talk about this chronic inflammation the chronic inflammation is all about the cells and some of the cells dying because the telomeres have shortened because the free radicals are coming from the mitochondria so all of that stuff going on but if our telomeres which are the end of the chromosome shorten it means that cells are going to die quicker than they would normally do. So our aging process increases, and that creates some of the inflammation. The telomere, um, and I won't go into too much detail on that, is actually governed by an enzyme called telomerase, which can actually lengthen the telomere. So it's not all doom and gloom if you've had a really kind of unhealthy life and you want to get back to normal. And that telomerase is really hard to reproduce. The only thing that can really do it is physical activity. But green exercise increases telomerase considerably more than indoor exercise, which means that potential is that your anti-aging or your slowing of the aging will be more impressive if you do outdoor green exercise than if you do indoor gym. Both help, have to say that. We also know that nature, probably because of the fact that that's where we are feeling most comfortable, is incredibly important for mental health. And there's a lot of evidence about reduction in depression, of anxiety for children with ADHD, um, for many other aspects, it is incredibly important. But it also has an additional role of prevention of heart disease. Um, if you look at the systematic reviews there, and diabetes, probably because of the reduction in stress and the telomerase thing. So there's a lot we still are working out that's happening. But instinctively, I think we'd all say, do you know, we prefer being outside, you know, as long as you've got a place which, you know, you're wearing the right kit. Of course, when it's raining and cold and miserable, we don't like it. But when it's not, being outdoors does add extra health benefits. And I think that's a message we're now trying to get across. The government have got, um, I think it's 10 schemes which are now doing green social prescribing to look at the additional benefit of nature. And it's now mainstream but it's something we should be, particularly as clinicians uh, or any healthcare provider, should be pushing um, people into wanting to get that connection. Even if you're not doing any exercise, sitting down on a bench, looking out and taking part of nature does a huge amount of restoration for the brain, which helps us to cope with 
depression, anxiety, and other mental health problems. You can say I'm excited by that. <laughs> <laughs> You've reassured me about the fact that I've moved from a busy city to the countryside. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And actually, you don't need to be in a countryside in, 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 even then. You can still be in a, a city, but just finding out those little parks, those little green trees, even a tree, you know, can have a huge impact. You know, we know that sitting out, looking out of a window to trees means you're more productive. Hospital stays a little shorter Prisoners that tend, tend to be less aggressive, P- patients of dementia are calmer, you know, all of those things just by looking at trees. So, yeah, just getting one tree is sometimes all you need. And there are not many places in the country where there are no trees at all. I think it's Victoria Street in London is one of the places that's got virtually no trees at all. Because I used to work there and it was where Natural England was, which is quite bizarre. <laughs> Just just to kind of finish, I suppose from a healthcare professional point of view, if there's any medics listening, how does all the work that, that you've been doing with Natural England, with Intelligent Health, how does that play into your day-to-day role as a, as a GP? Do you find that it helps you to engage your patients into becoming more active and getting outdoors more? Or do you fit, still face lots of challenges and barriers like we all do in our day-to-day work? Well, I think I've, I've kind of my kind of day-to-day life now as a GP is mostly out of hours, but it still means I'm dealing with a lot of patients, but probably more on acute issues. But I still use that opportunity to talk about physical activity because you can, you know, even if someone comes in out of hours and they're dealing with something like abdominal pain or earache or their child is unwell with a high temperature, it's amazing how you can just say, oh, no, how, or how did you get here, car, you know, how are you feeling? Are you getting, what are you going to do this weekend for activity or are you going to do anything or be really good? Probably not now because you're ill, but obviously when you get better. So you can drop it into conversation and people say, oh, there's no time because we're having to do all our cough stuff and we have to do this and that. And But there is time, you know, as a, as a good doctor, you should be able to look at where the priorities are and then this is absolutely a priority. And irrespective of what they come for, there's always an opportunity to drop it into a conversation. I would say that a lot of doctors are getting it now. When I first started this and I did some training of doctors in 2012 for the Olympics, and most GPs then, in fact, every single GP didn't know the guidance for the government of physical activity and not even the nurses did. And they're normally better at protocols than doctors are. Now, the number's gone right up. I can't remember what it is now. It's about 40 or 50%, I think, but I, I, I would, I'm not sure on that entirely. So I think there's a mainstream understanding of physical activity. What I think healthcare professionals of all types find hard is how to include it in a conversation without it sounding preachy, but also a bit fearful about what they're meant to be talking about. And I think that's something we should all be learning about. Moving Medicine website, absolutely brilliant to getting that how to do a consultation for one minute or two minutes or five minutes. And the BMJ e-learning will give you all the science behind it. So those two things I'd recommend anyone to go to and then just drop it into a conversation because that tiny little information to the patient makes them feel it's important. Even if it's at the end of the consultation, they're about to go out the door and they said, next time you come back, Mr. Jones, make sure we can talk about physical activity because I don't want to let this drop. And you haven't had time to talk about it, but you've just brought it up at the end. And that will go in the patient's mind thinking, the doctor thinks that's important. It was important enough for him to mention it as I was leaving. And that will stay in their mind. And it's we don't realize that. But what we do know is that anyone and the healthcare professional where they're trusted has a huge impact on behavior change. And 
that is one way of doing it. So we should learn. Yeah, there's no excuse really not to bring it up in most consultations, clearly not all consultations, but most consultations. Yeah, I think the number needed to treat for talking about physical activity is estimated to be about 12, which isn't high compared to a lot of the other things that we spend a lot of time talking about and often it's don't get don't get the results. Yeah, it's so good. That is, you know, it is extraordinary that, you know, how many, you know, prevention of statins of heart disease, you know, how many is that? You know, that is an awful lot. <laughs> it's a lot bigger than 12, that's for sure. Um, so 12 is, a, is amazing. And yet we don't see it very often because sometimes we don't, you know, we talk about it and we just don't think the patient is going to get it and log, log it in, but it does, it stays. And I've had patients come back and said, doctor, it was when you talked about physical activity, it made me really think and I've completely changed my life. And I thought, well, I don't think we even talked about it. I think I mentioned it once in passing, but that was enough to, for make them to go. And I think that's, yeah, we have to be reassured that even if it's a tiny amount of um, act, of discussion, it will have enough and I, I think that goes to, to be quite reassuring about knowing guidelines as well. In the ideal world, we'd all know exactly what the government guidelines are for each stage of the life course. But actually, it, that's not what the patient's listening to. It's just about getting them to be a little bit more active or actually finding something that they're going to enjoy. Or maybe, you know, letting them know about the local park run, especially if you're paired with it as the GP practice and um, activities like that. That's far more important than saying do 150 minutes of activity this week. Yeah, exactly. And that won't, that probably won't last. And the other thing is to be, think about it, to believe it yourself as a doctor or a nurse or whoever, that if you don't believe in it at all and you do no activity at all, it's going to be really hard to persuade other patients to do it because they kind of sense somehow that that's not the case. So I think it's the first stage of a journey for those who don't do activity or don't really get this is to start to understand it themselves and to enjoy it, really enjoy it and start doing something. And it could be anything from just a, a short walk to the local park or even just around the block with the dog to going to a Babington or going to dancing or going to something completely different that you've not done before. And that personal journey we've got to do first will then really resonate with the patient. There's that transference that goes on, which really makes it much easier to talk about. And the patient can see the enthusiasm you have. So, I mean, I know, Amy, you're an incredible runner, um, and a lot of doctors probably won't be quite that type of that quality of running that you could do, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean they can't talk about it. You know, it's the smallest amount of activity they're doing. As long as they believe in it, then it will show through and shine through. Yeah, and I think for most of us, at least, we can all improve how active we are during the day. I know I might run a lot, but um, you've probably oversold me a bit there. But I'm definitely, I can definitely be guilty of being too sedentary during the day and kind of sitting, working at a laptop and not really getting up. So that's something that I've been trying to improve and just getting a bit more movement into my day to day. And I think just going through the motions of having to do that and, and being a bit more active and realizing how challenging it is, but then how beneficial it is when you do do that is really helpful when you're having those conversations about activity with people, be that patients, friends or family. It's just really helpful to have had that firsthand experience with doing doing all the things that, that we preach, I suppose. Yeah, I think I think it is. Um, and our life changes. You know, we will go through different stages of our life and sometimes it's really easy to be active and other times it's really, really difficult. We've got to accept that. I don't think we should beat ourselves up if we go through a period where we're not doing as much activity as we want to or it's almost completely stopped because of other pressures. And all patients' lives would be like that. You know, it fluctuates all the time. So, But you don't 
panic or worry about it when it goes down. You just make sure when things are right again, you build it back up again. You try and do it. I think sometimes we say you've got to do your 30 minutes, you've got to do 150 minutes a week, you know, as you said before. And that just stresses people out hugely. <laughs> it really does. And 150 minutes doesn't mean anything. You know, it's a time it's a time that nobody ever talks about other than when we're talking about physical activity. You talk about half an hour, you talk about 20 minutes, you talk about an hour, but 150 minutes doesn't resonate. And I think, you know, there's an issue there where you have to put it into language and an understanding and say, yeah, do about this, but don't, don't worry too much if it's not quite right yet. Start with 10 minutes a day if that's all you can do. Um, perhaps alternate days and then build up. Just doing something is is the key to the message we've got to do, or more than what you're doing now if it's not very much at all. Yeah, absolutely. And the greatest gains are, are at that very beginning stage. Thank you so much for your time. That was really, really insightful and really interesting uh, for me to hear about all the, all the work you've done in particular. Um, is there anything that you wanted to add or anywhere you wanted to direct listeners to if they are hoping to learn more about the work that you've done um, with intelligent health or just more about this topic in general? No, I mean, I think if you are, um, I mean, Beat Street goes into places which are you know, cities or towns, or etc. But if you are in a town or city and you're kind of saying, well, can't we bring Beat the Street? Go onto the website of Intelligent Health and you can always contact us there. Um, my email is very easy. It's william.bird at intelligenthealth.co.uk. Um, the BMJ e-learning, just put in BMJ e-learning, physical activity, and it's this side of the far, of the paywall, so you don't have to pay anything. You just put your email in, and then you get all nine modules. And Moving Medicine is movingmedicine.ac.uk. So that would be the things I'd say I'd recommend. Great. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, and thank you for listening. Many thanks to Dr. William Bird for joining me on this episode. As he mentioned, you can find his website at intelligenthealth.co.uk. If you enjoyed our conversation, then please do share the episode and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple. And do get in touch if there's topics or guests that you'd like to see on a future episode. If you'd like to hear more from me, then you can visit marathonmedic.com, where you'll find more podcast episodes as well as blog posts and tips to get more active. You can also find me on Instagram by searching Marathon Medic. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.